What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Mac Coleridge with Assure. So for those that don't know, Assure is the OG most used SPV platform. SPV stands for Special Purpose Vehicle. They help anybody running SPVs by handling all their administrative work so that you can just focus more on getting deals done. Max the VP and he also leads up their analytics team to leverage data to better understand trends. In this talk, we cover perspectives on building track record, SPV trends, and takeaways on innovation within the VC tech stack. All right, sweet. So Mac, appreciate you joining. Before jumping into some deeper questions, I think we like to just kick things off by learning a little bit more about you. So with that said, would love to just open this up uh, with a quick intro on who you are and what your path was to get to where you are today. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, excited to get to chat with you today. So my name is Mac Kolarich. I'm the vice president of both marketing and uh, analytics at Assure, uh, and I uh, we'll, we'll dive into Assure in a little, uh, couple minutes here. But I really got my start into what I'm doing today through startup companies, fundamentally uh, being an entrepreneur. So years ago, um, actually, right around the global financial crisis, I was coming out of school and was working on a a small tech project with someone who ended up becoming my first uh, co-founder and a friend's boss who also happened to be an entrepreneur actually encouraged me to attend a a startup weekend funny enough and uh, I I did I'd heard about these kind of 54-hour competitions where you could meet like-minded people fundamentally who are interested in trying to build things and turn them into businesses and I attended really three in three different cities in quick succession, trying to kind of just see what different startup ecosystems were like. So I did LA, I did New York and DC, which is where I was living at the time. And that was kind of it. That launched me into my career to this date. Uh, Several years later, funny enough, actually through the Startup Weekend Network, I'd I'd also ultimately meet my my second co-founder on a subsequent company in Rio de Janeiro. Um, but I started uh, prior to sure effectively really three different companies, if you kind of, uh, you know, ignore pivots <laughs> and over time have, have increasingly leaned into working in and around the financial industry in some capacity, um, really around pri- private assets. So the first company was a SaaS marketplace to automate event PR. Um, that was fun one. The company was called Scene Squid and uh, really built these media networks in these cities across the U.S. and uh, we're, was doing SaaS in the early days of SaaS when people were really just trying to figure out, you know, what, how will you measure these metrics differently and, um, you know, w- w- what are you tracking and sold to small and medium-sized businesses up to, in some cases, some large brick-and-mortar uh, brands that were using us to a- activate their their in um, in-store events. Uh, my second company was really more of an angel organization. It was for profit, but in some ways it kind of looked and operated like Startup Weekend. Um, company was called Startup Angels. 
And we were fundamentally trying to increase the number of angel investors in startup ecosystems around the world. Got to work with thousands of uh, existing and uh, aspiring investors. Um, we scaled our curriculum and uh, held these kind of large angel summit conferences across US, Europe, Latin America. And then the third company, uh, which was acquired by Assure, was called Different or Different Funds, which initially was a venture capital marketplace for LPs to try to you know help them find funds. Uh, but that grew into a research and data consultant for institutional LPs and family offices. And in that work, we built the largest data set on U.S. venture firms and did tons of novel analysis and reports and publications that. Uh, really kind of pushed forward what was known about uh, the GP and LP dynamic. Um, and so that that work we were doing it different um, caught the eye of Assure. We'd known that team for a while because um, uh, we respected their work they were doing with SPVs and kind of cost efficient structuring of, of funds and, and support for, for private asset investors. And so they asked us to come on board and do what we'd been doing it different. Uh, but really expand that work across all of Usher's data and start to think more broadly beyond just venture uh, across all kinds of asset classes. Nice. Well, that's pretty good transition into follow-up question we had, which was just diving into Usher a little bit deeper. I mean, we've obviously heard about you guys, we've done some work with you guys, but for anybody in our audience that has not heard of Usher, Give us the quick elevator pitch on you all and specifically types of people that you guys target. Sure. So we are basically back office experts and we do more special purpose vehicles than anyone in the industry. So for those who don't know, SPVs are basically an efficient, simple, cost-effective way to raise capital from your network of investors in order to deploy into generally a specific deal that is already identified. Um, most SPVs are, are single asset, though some, some are double or multi-asset. Uh, and then as the organizer of an SPV, you can also do things like assess carry on that deal, take management fees, so on and so forth. Um, at Assure, we have uh, closed over 9,000 SPVs to date at this point and have been in business for over 10, 10 years. And we offer end-to-end -end SPV support, including information, compliance, administration, uh, taxes. We have tax in-house, which is very rare in the world of kind of back office administrators, uh, all the way through exits and distributions. And so given all these deals we've supported, it means that we've seen virtually every kind of deal that is done in the private markets and, and may make sense for an SPV and virtually every kind of scenario that you might encounter in years two, four, six, eight, or 10 of the life cycle of your SPV. So with us, we're not really surprised and we can help see around corners and we basically put things in place to avoid any you know challenges that may arise way down the road, even though right now you're thinking about, okay, let me get this capital raised and get it deployed into this deal that is, is pressing for me today. We work with all kinds of investors um, across quite a range of alternative assets. 
clients range from VC firms to syndicate networks to angels. Uh, we work with broker dealers, merchant banks, family offices, real estate funds, crypto funds, uh, you name it. If they might have the need for an SPV, odds are we've worked with at least some kind of investor of, of that um, kind of you know back, background or perspective. Uh, and then similarly for assets, uh, a lot of the SPVs ultimately are going into startup companies from SACE to, you know, Series C, Series D rounds and later. Um, but we also have SPVs that have invested across secondary transactions, private credit, uh, real estate, rare art, and wine and antique cars, uh, lumber, film finance. Got it. I didn't even realize that Assure covered that broad of a... Uh... Of a spectrum, I kind of just assume that all SPV back office providers just focus more on startup investments because that's obviously the world that we play in. Um, but I didn't realize you guys went that broad with it. I guess follow-up question to that is just from an outsider's perspective, it seems like SPV investments has become more and more popular as a form of financing, um, both for investors and startup founders. For the last, I mean, say five to 10 years, where do you think, and this is going to, we're going to follow up to this question later in the talk, but where do you think um, SPV investing is headed? Like, do you think there's going to be more and more of these SPV investments? Do you think like from a founder's perspective, are there more value? Is there more value from taking SPV investment versus traditional fund investment? Um, just curious how like you guys are thinking about the value prop of SPVs versus traditional fund investing. Yeah, so it's a great question. I think first and foremost, certainly, I mean, we're seeing it grow. It's going to continue to grow. Um, 2022 is, uh, you know, compared to 2021, a bit of a down year to some extent in terms of overall activity, but that is basically in line with, you know, every asset class, you know, pretty much anywhere with a few exceptions. Uh, but if you look at it year on uh, year on year and you take 2021 as an outlier, it's continuing to grow. 2022 is well above where things were at in 2020. And I think the reason that SPVs are growing at adoption varies by <clears throat> who's using it. Um, you know, funds have uh, different reasons to use it from family offices, from founders, uh, but there's a lot of merits to it across the board. Uh, for From the founder perspective, I don't know that there's necessarily a strong, compelling reason to say, you know, I want, you know, to take capital from like a, an SPV per se versus a fund. The The real value to the founder is um, the keeping a clean cap table, right? So... If uh, if you've got a number of angels that are going to come into the deal, uh, putting them into an SPV can simplify that process and make it cleaner and sometimes a little bit easier to handle that back office administration. Um, so there's merit there. Uh, in some cases, as a founder, if you're raising subsequent rounds and you've got a VC who's already committed uh, and they have pro rata rights, they may just choose to use an SPV in order to uh, take um, uh, take those pro, pro rata rights because they don't have a you know sufficient capital within their fund to to take it. Uh, from a an entrepreneur standpoint, it's money in the bank and it just makes it easier to report. Um, vice versa, 
for funds and for LPs, I think the big thing that's driving this adoption is, is flexibility and kind of transparency into where the capital is going. And we, we can talk about this more, but we're seeing a growing number of, of aspiring VCs choosing not to actually form blind pool funds. And instead they're building these syndicate networks that are really built around deal by deal uh, choice for their, their investor networks. Uh, and I, I think we're, we're still in the very early innings. We're seeing growth, not only in the US, all across Europe, we're seeing uh, other countries implementing kind of new regulatory frameworks to actually enable SPVs, since SPVs uh, you know, are not always easy or financially reasonable to do in different, um, under different uh, legal frameworks. Uh, some are starting to think about how do we tokenize uh, ownership. So uh, it's, it's early and I think it's pretty exciting. I we're just gonna see more of this going forward. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of a good segue to next question we had, which was around the survey we ran with you all earlier this year. Just the survey for anybody that didn't check it out was really about how Confluence's members, which is primarily next generation VCs, think analysts, associate, principal level folks, how they're thinking about SPV investments. So how, like, what were some of the biggest takeaways that your team had from that survey and I guess follow-up question to that. Um, like, do you think everything, like the takeaways from that survey, do you think they still apply today? Uh, or do you think there's anything that's kind of changed from then until now? Yeah, so I, you know, personally, but I know that, you know, the market overall uh, in terms of people who are consuming content around private investing, people are interested in that next generation of investors and allocators that today aren't frequently benchmarked or, or always consulted, but I mean, your members are, I mean, they're the future of, of venture capital and, and of startup investing. I, I think it's really exciting to see what they're thinking. So some of the responses certainly mirrored what we expected to see, uh, such as um, this was you know, in the spring of 2022. So things like rapid rates of capital deployment over the prior couple of years, um, funds sacrificing on due diligence to get into deals. I think it's like something like 50% or so of respondents have said, yeah, um, we, we agree that we have done this. Um, so those didn't surprise us at Assure. Um, they just really confirmed things that we were, were, were thinking to be true um, from everything else we'd heard. But there were some, th some aspects that did kind of surprise us. So one, one of the biggest stand standouts was for, the, for folks who took the survey and um, said that they didn't yet have a sufficient track record or, or they're struggling to build one. 75% uh, of those respondents said that they that was due to not having enough capital to even get started. Uh, and I think part of the reasons why this surprised us is that if you can win an allocation in a deal and you've got a network of accredited investors, you can do an SPV and syndicate that deal and assess for some form of carry uh, as a you know potential you know incentive, uh, you know, aligned incentive for accessing and diligencing that deal. That's possible. Uh, but kind of in conjunction with that was this 
lack of awareness of SPVs and how they're used by VC firms by um, the the junior level respondents. And we we broke the the survey into kind of senior, you know, partner level investment decision makers, and then more junior level folks at in venture or at VC firms, say like associates or or um, folks like that who. Um, Fundamentally, we're, we're really new to SPVs, um, whereas the experienced investment decision makers, uh, over 50% of them uh, were already using SPVs as part of their strategy. So I th think it was kind of this awareness disconnect that in our world, we thought, you know, pe people were pretty were aware, but it stood out to us that um, <clears throat> that they weren't. And, you know, when you're trying to or want to build a fund in the long run, um, you know, getting that attributable track record is a challenge. And one way to do that is to go deal by deal, find great deals and uh, kind of uh, test it out with your investor network and build that reputation. Um, in terms of things that have changed uh, or would change if we were to do another barometer uh, kind of now, think absolutely we would certainly see some pretty different responses the world's quite different today from from six to eight months ago um so we've certainly gone from kind of a bullish to bearish perspective uh, across the private markets and, and a lot of different asset classes although really what this is kind of the knock-on effect is what that means is it's actually a lot better time to invest now. You know, valuations are compressing down, which means this vintage and likely the next vintage are where great deals are going to get done. So since we're not really overpaying for deals like we were last year at this point, that's great for anyone who still has the capacity and interest to deploy into startups or funds because you're just getting better prices, um, better ownership amounts and so on and so forth. I think the other thing we would see is um, fundraising cadences really starting to stretch out. Um, we know a lot of funds have slowed the pace of capital deployment this year. We also know that LPs are getting a bit more careful and selective, particularly as it relates to emerging managers. We published a a research article a couple months ago to, on our site under the analytics section that looks just at kind of capital flows in general across flag, flagship funds, across SPVs, across opportunity funds, um, across fund stage, investment thesis, so on and so forth. And one of the things that we saw was that thus uh, for in the first half of 2022, uh, first-time funds took just 6% of the capital that was raised by USV uh, venture funds. And if you compare that to 2020, uh, in that year, and at the same time period, first-time funds took around 20%. So that's down by over two-thirds. And I think it's going to have some pretty significant consequences for the venture community in general in the, the medium run. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I mean, it's a subject we've thought about a lot too. I think one thing... That I wanted to get your take on as a follow-up to that is, I mean, as SPV investing has become more popular, I think there have become more LPs that these syndicate leads are competing for attention with. Um, 
I guess the, the question I have is like, have you noticed any strategies from syndicate leads of like how they're breaking past that and getting consistent, like consistently hitting the minimums that they have for like targeted investment amount when like today versus five years ago, uh, now it's just a lot harder to get those commitments because more people are asking the same LPs for those dollars. Is that a clear question? I feel like I just rambled pretty, pretty long on that. Uh, but like, I guess to compress that, it's like, how are you seeing syndicate leads go about the problem of like it becoming harder to compete for LP attention? So it's, it's a great question and I can answer it to some extent. I'm not, you know, f- tied in depth into, you know, all of the fundraising and messaging materials that, um, you know, any kind of organizer or, you know, syndicate lead is um, sending out to their networks, but I do see some of it. Um, so this, I mean, it's, it's a host of strategies and you, you do have to find what works for you. Um, telegraphing ahead of time is uh, when you think you've got a deal coming up is, is good. the way you package uh, your message matters. Uh, there certainly is competing attention for capital of really any investor, right? And do they go into bonds even, or or you know publicly traded stocks versus um, you know a longer lockup in a private asset? And that's a question people are are, are dealing with. I think one you know one thing that successful syndicators can lean into beyond like okay why do why is this deal great. Why do I want this? You know, if we're taking pro rata and a deal I'm already in, you know, why am I doubling down? But is to lean in, lean in wherever possible into, you know, favorable terms. That, that, that's one selling point. And I think savvy uh, investors are still picking up on that and deploying capital. One thing we, we do track is just investor participation in not only venture funds, and that actually has ticked up quite a bit over uh, the last few years. I think the median or average, I think the median flagship fund this year has 110 LPs in it. Uh, SPVs have a lot fewer investors. Sometimes you see high numbers, but usually it's it's much lower, closer to you know 10 to you know 35 and that kind of range. Um, but the number of investors participating. Uh, certainly has gone down this year, which is reflecting, you know, some of your investors are capital constrained or they have liquidity challenges and they're just not, or, or their their portfolio is way out of balance and they're hesitant to commit more to a particular asset class. That just does occur, but things are still happening. Uh, last week, I was out in Napa at a, at a family office conference talking about how family offices are using SPVs. And they use them similarly, but a little bit different from VCs. Um, While the number of uh, investors participating in a family office-led SPV has basically dropped almost in half from what we saw in 2021, what we're seeing is those who are still participating are actually starting to write bigger checks. So the those that are sticking around are still believing in the organizer of the SPV, the deals that they're sharing, and they're putting more capital into it. So the median size, actually, at least in family offices, the median size of, of their SPVs has actually gone up uh, over the last couple of years each year. 
Does that, does that yeah. answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I'm just, I don't know if there's like a, like very clear answer to that question. I mean, I've tried to pick a lot of different people's brains on it, uh, like how they're getting around competing for LP attention and like how LPs are thinking about it. But I think that gives like a better framework of thinking through things. I guess related question to that is have you guys noticed any pushback from LPs as more and more SPVs are being launched? So reason I asked is when I was thinking through this, I would think that if you are an LP and more like you know, the person you're backing is just launching more and more SPVs, you're calling capital more frequently, which just creates more friction. Um, are you notice any pushback from LPs because of this increased frequency or am I just completely wrong? Am I thinking there? So I, I think it's a great question to ask. Um, generally, not really. Um, now you could certainly kind of abuse or annoy your network and, you know, send deals that maybe aren't great. Right. So you do have to think about like, if I'm going to share a deal for whatever reason, does this pass my threshold? Right. And because the, uh, the, the environment is more investor friendly, I mean, you are as the organizer or the syndicator, I mean, you're, you're vetting that deal as well. So it should be more friendly to you as well. Right. Um, but people really like SPVs because of the flexibility. It's not a requirement to invest, right? It's not like an actual capital call, like you'll see with a blind pool fund. And as, as a fund manager, there, there are merits to having those commitments and knowing that you have capital you can call, but then again, you're, you're spot on. That is something you have to manage and you have to uh, make sure LPs are not surprised by, by too many capital calls. Um, with an SPV, that's an up-down vote. And a lot of investors really do like the power of that choice. Um, they also like that typically SPVs allow them to kind of buy down their cost of ownership. So if they've committed to your fund and then you're syndicating pro rata out on you know, a subsequent series B or C raise that you know, your fund is not equipped to take, but you believe in that company, uh, a lot of LPs, particularly family offices, really like having that option because they can invest more capital and it's, it's at lower costs, candidly. I mean, a lot of SPVs do charge carry. Um, I think for VC-led SPVs, and we have a huge report on this that we just published a couple of weeks ago called How VCs Use SPVs. But as it relates to carry, I think it 90% or so of any VC-led SPV has some kind of carry on it, and it's usually 20%. Uh, but then uh, management fees are pretty rare. And when management fees are charged in the SPV, they're much lower than what is charged from kind of a you know, fully blended average in, in a venture fund. And so this is basically cost savings to LPs that they don't have to commit capital to. They just have to spend a little bit of time thinking about, do they want to put into this uh, additional capital in? Uh, they've likely, at least in pro rata, seen the deal already. And so they kind of know about the company and they can make that decision. Now, some, some of it, this is where you have to kind of know and understand your investor network really well. Um, you've got to kind of be in careful 
you know, not too frequent contact, but contact where you're monitoring how each investor really responds to, you know, a, a deal or an SPV that you're sharing their way and kind of monitor it because some are going to want to see every single one. Some are going to want to see specific deals and they may not be mad or, you know, annoyed if you send them deals that are relevant, but some have specific interests and some don't want to see it all, at all. Uh, and so the more you can kind of streamline your communications and pinpoint that targeting, I think that is great in terms of being careful how you use your investor bandwidth and when they pay attention to, to what you send their way. As it relates to like institutional LPs, which matters more for more established funds, a lot of times they don't want to be bothered with this kind of stuff. They want to commit to funds. They want to have that capital managed because uh, they are manage a very complex, large portfolio and you were just a moving piece in it. And so they're not interested in seeing those kinds of deals. That said, that's not true for all of them. So I know uh, there are some pensions and endowments that actually are interested in uh, taking on, you know, kind of additional pro rata through SPVs and have actually had conversations with some, some pretty large, uh, even, you know, government or state, state government pensions that do do this on occasion. So the more you can kind of just track that network and, you know, have your own CRM where you're measuring how people respond, I, I think the better position you are to not fatigue people. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's more, it's an art more than a science of like figuring out the right cadence, not pissing off your LPs. I think the the game that I've just noticed a lot of SPV leads play, which seems like such an uphill battle, is just to get a bunch of like chase after a bunch of small checks and try to increase the size of their LP network without really seeing like what the average check size is from those people and just chase down a lot of smaller checks versus just partnering up with like family office or some type of institutional investor that they prioritize getting them in the deals and figure out what they like and then kind of match their thesis to that. So then you are essentially trying to please one larger check rather than chase down several um, it, kind of yeah, it's, it's, it's a different strategy. I mean, you're right. Candidly, most first time funds have to raise quite a few small checks, you know, yeah. just in a blind pool fund. Uh, and so, you know, folks who are starting syndicate networks, I mean, maybe doing the same. Some of this is like, who do you know? But it takes a while to build trust with family offices, let alone large institutional investors. Yeah. So, you know, you can kind of work your way into those larger checks over time. I think some of this depends on, you know, how, how passionate are you about your thesis area and why you are an investor? Um, I mean, you're right. It is a lot of work to wrangle lots of small checks. People certainly do it. You know, any raising a first time fund or a second time fund is not any easier. Right. And you kind of have to figure out what's going to resonate with your thesis and your brand and you know the folks that you can you can get access to um who are going to give you the time of day on your deals yeah totally agree uh well let's see switching gears a little bit here so last question i have before jumping into quick fire but assure was one of the really early players i think that addressed the venture capital stack tech stack 
over the last few years, a ton of new players have entered. I think it's like becoming one of the more innovative spaces within the tech world right now. How are you guys thinking about competition for VC attention and what all are you guys doing to differentiate against some of the newer players that you're seeing now? Sure. So great question. Uh, it, you're right. It, the, it, the back office landscape in terms of technology and just innovative approaches has changed significantly in the last five years, which is great because you know, venture and private investing and more generally have not seen a lot of innovation over the last several decades. And so it is time that we're seeing more and it's great to see attention and resources put towards improving really pretty frustrating experiences that a lot of people don't like dealing with. So it's a great business problem, but, uh, you know, historically we, you know, a lot of folks have ignored this in terms of innovation. Um, as it relates to Assure, uh, I, first and foremost, I, I cannot understate just how far ahead of the curve Assure is on experience and this can and does matter. So some of these new competitors are really just beginning to have to deal with complex tax situations, and they've hardly scratched the surface on things like membership transfers, let alone distributions. Uh, so those competitors are really using their clients as guinea pigs. Uh, we at Assure are way past that, and in most cases, we've seen your scenario and have a solution and a system already in place to actually handle it. So that's one just kind of major differentiator uh, from us versus virtually all of our other competition, given the sheer number of deals that we've supported. Uh, but the, beyond this, we're thinking past just the SPV, just fund administration. And by the way, we, we do have CFO services for, for emerging managers. We really focus on kind of smaller funds, um, but we do that as well. And we're thinking about, okay, what else can we provide in terms of value and support and expertise to help investors make better decisions or be more aware of the market or more aware, aware of where they fit in? Uh, in terms of their peers and competitors and their strategies. So this is, I think, where a lot of our analytics unit content and benchmarks comes in. Uh, we publish uh, reports, uh, analysis, commentary, thought leadership uh, on, sure, yes, SPVs. Yes, how SPVs are used by different kinds of clients and for different asset classes. But then we're digging into those asset classes as well. And particularly as it relates to venture and kind of our team's background, uh, you know, at the company of Sure Acquire Different, um, we're really, uh, they, we have a lot in the works in order to continue our prior analysis and research that uh, we publish while at Different, which is, is, is now with Assure. So um, in 2018, we published the state of terms in venture capital, which nobody had ever done before. We had heard all this kind of, inquiry from LPs and GPs of, well, what's market? What's market? I don't know what market is. I'm going to set this. This LP is saying that my terms are too high or look weird. And we were diligencing hundreds of funds through our marketplace and kind of institutional uh, consulting work and put together uh, 
the first ever benchmark on this and rolled that out. And since then, it's been downloaded thousands and thousands of times and cited by lots of GPs and LPs. This is just like one example. Another one and an area we intend to do a fair bit more work on going forward is around like venture deck analysis. And uh, people were you know, sending us our, we'd seen a lot of bad decks. People were sending our, us their decks for, for feedback. That still occurs currently. Um, and we decided, hey, let's build a framework in order to try to structure concepts in that fundraising experience, where they're introduced in that deck, how managers of kind of different geographies or thesis areas or backgrounds, how do they tell their story to prospective LPs? And let's put it out there. Uh, so like in this, this, this deck analysis report, we found, okay, what's the median? It's 27 slides. It's 22 VC related concepts. They use 74 logos, which by the way, is kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, but that's just the surface. Uh, we dug into things like where, uh, how our narrative structured, what is the order of major concepts and where they're introduced. Uh, a couple like tidbits from that are, um, you know, if we just take performance, so, uh, and what kind of performance you talk about, well, with first time funds, most of them, I mean, they don't have performance, right? 52% uh, of first time funds though, talk about non-firm related performance, performance outside of that venture brand, whereas, Second and later funds, more established funds, only 29% of them do. Uh, so like that's that's one variation. Whereas if you look at diverse led funds versus non-diverse uh, GP funds, they differ not only in their design choices, but diverse led funds introduce performance way earlier in their decks. I think it's uh, like 53% earlier. They're handling, in some cases, really you know implicit and structural bias and trying to hit that head on of, yeah, here's my performance. Let's talk about it right now. Let's get it out of the way. Compare that to Silicon Valley-based funds, uh, which are much more likely to talk about who they know uh, and lean into that kind of who are co-investors, who follow on. Uh, they tend to use logos even more than, than that 74 median. So pretty fascinating, pretty insightful. And this is informing how we think about what we're doing at Assure. So we're not just doing SPVs. We're looking at ways that we can add insightful value to our clients, to their investors, and to the market in general in order to make private assets more accessible and help people make much more effective decisions in, in how they're allocating and how they're thinking about, about their uh full investment portfolio. Yeah, it's really interesting. We'll absolutely link that entire report within this, just so people can look at it and for themselves. I feel like we could unpack that in a lot more detail and I could probably ask 10 additional follow-up questions, but I think easier route just to link it, let people dig in for themselves and probably just like have a bunch of different findings from that. Totally. that sounds interesting. And if, if people have... Look, I, I found that the VC deck report, I've, all of our research has, has been fascinating for different reasons, but the VC deck report I found, you know, really interesting. People have questions or, you know, would like to see certain kinds of analysis. Um, we're all ears, right? Please reach out, open the suggestions. Um, if we can do it, uh, we'll, we'll try to conduct the analysis and put it out there. Totally. 
Well, cool. You want to run through quick fire? Sure. Sounds good. Cool. So we got five questions here meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? So I think my, my quick fire on this is a bit more nuanced, uh, but it's that there's not necessarily bad advice that stands out to me. It's that um, the advice needs to work for your personality and your personal circumstances. Um, people will uh, give great or potentially great advice that they truly believe because it worked for them. Uh, but you've got to figure out whether you yourself can actually implement it and whether it sits right for you. So I that's agree. my, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. In the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? So for me, uh, as part of the uh, acquisition with Assure, I, I relocated to Denver um, and kind of this new, I guess it's a habit, but in some ways a behavior and it's becoming a belief uh, is, is uh, driving or commuting in order to run. Uh, I don't have to do that. There's some great running routes near me, but uh, there's some absolutely amazing uh, running just a short drive away from where I live in every direction. I never wanted to do that. Uh, you know, when I was younger of no interest, I was like, let me just run when I exit my apartment. But now I'm seeing the merits of no, sometimes it's worth that extra drive. Yeah. Just for better views. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Figured. Yeah. I mean, I feel like after literally a month of living in somewhere, you just get tired of seeing the same scenery every single day. Like you got to switch it up. Well, and not to plug Denver, because I, I, I know we're, we're uh, growing very quickly, but uh, it literally is in every direction. There's some kind of an incredible spot, whether you want to go to Rocky Mountain Arsenal or you go south and it's a totally different environment or you head into the mountains or you, know, you pop over to Golden and you run up canyons as the creek runs by. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've, I've, only, I've only flown through Denver. I've never actually been there to visit but i need to it's on my short list place in the states when you go let's see next one we've got is what is one piece of advice you'd give to somebody starting a company today so i know we we talked about advice so take this with a <laughs> grain of salt but <laughs> um someone once told me this and i don't remember who it was but i uh, you know, appreciate their words of wisdom. Uh, it's that if you're not nervous, at least 50% of the time, you're not trying hard enough. Now, that nervousness ebbs and flows. And sometimes it's great to be in kind of, a, you know, a, a flow state without that nerves and just super high productivity. But I think that's like a good barometer, particularly as a founder, but anyone who's trying to really build something, I think that's a good barometer to make sure you are growing. Yeah, I agree. I've uh, heard that from a couple of people now and totally agree. I mean, I think if you actually want something like at least something about it should scare you or at least like the process to get there scare you. It shouldn't be all smooth sailing. So, yeah, well, it, it just unlocks, uh, it unlocks that next level. Like I, I one of the, one of my activities I enjoy or hobbies that I, I don't oftentimes have the time to do uh but I'm I really enjoy mountaineering 
right? Uh, like on ice glaciers, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And candidly, you know, each time I've gone out on a on any kind of serious trip, I am pushing myself and it's kind of scaring the hell out of me. <laughs> but yeah. when I come back and I think back about it, it like puts not only, you know, that experience and, you know, the next time I go out is better, but also it puts a lot of other problems into, you know, better context of like, okay, I did this. I challenged myself. I can certainly handle this other thing. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that makes typing on a computer seem pretty chill. Like there's not, (laughs) not a whole lot of pressure. Absolutely. Uh, What's something you believe that most other people don't? So it's kind of a tough one. I th- I think there's lots of things that I suspect I see a bit differently, um, but I've not really dug into depth on what you know what are the kind of the what is the median opinion on a lot of that. But I think one that maybe comes to mind first, uh, just because we are talking about rising interest rates and central bank policies, and that's in the news a lot. Um, is that the the quote unquote risk free rate isn't really risk free, uh, and there is a risk there. Uh, you can kind of debate endlessly to what extent the risk is present, uh, but it's not actually risk free. It's just the least amount of risk uh, in a lot of kind of accessible assets today. Yeah, I haven't heard that before, but I think it's true. Like now more than ever. Uh, last one we've got, if you had one ask for our listeners, what would that ask be? So obviously it would be to check out Assure and all our amazing research, uh, that we're producing for VCs around SPVs and funds more broadly, but, you know, beyond Assure, you know, at, at my core, I love working with emerging managers and angel investors and you know people who are are trying to back the next generation of innovation uh and so i want all of us to be successful and so i would say for uh, your listeners think carefully about your investment thesis and really figure out why it makes sense for you like drill into that nail that story know that like the way you're investing is right. And if you have that, I find that goes a long ways with resonating with prospective investors in your funds or SPVs or however you decide to raise capital. Yeah, I think it's good advice. Couldn't agree more. And that is all the questions I got for you, Mac. This has been, it's been awesome. It's been really insightful. I think I got a lot out of this. I think our listeners will too. But yeah, I just want to say thanks again for, for coming on. Right on. Thank you for having me. Um, excited to, to uh, hear more about what you guys do as, as you grow your organization as well. Huge thanks to Mac for coming on. We hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Mac, we've linked his social info in the description below. And you can also get it a hold of Assure by going to their website at assure, A-S-S-U-R-E dot co.
for next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.